Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We will continue our discussion on the Young Turks and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which ultimately led to the formation of the modern Middle East. And I want to keep that in perspective. I want you to understand that this is really a discussion about the formation of the modern Middle East, even though I, I keep naming these episodes Fall of the Ottomans. It's really not about the fall of the Ottomans. It's really about how the Middle East became the great big mess that it is today. Real quick, a recap of where we are so far. In the last episode discussing on, in this series regarding the Young Turks, the Young Turks, against the wishes of the Ottoman Caliph, the Sultan, the actual leader, they had dragged the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire into world, what we now know of as World War I. The Ottomans had joined on the side of the Germans, and in Britain, a man named Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, the former governor general of Cairo and a British hero, he was now the British minister of war. Lord Kitchener, because he had spent so much time in the Muslim world and around Muslims, he thought he understood Muslims and he thought he understood Islam better than he actually did. Kitchener relied a little bit too much on his intelligence officers in the Middle East, and they had informed him quite incorrectly that the young Turks these uh, Turkish politicians who were now running the Ottoman government, they had informed him that the young Turks were dominated by Jews and Freemasons, when in fact the young Turks were actually dominated by young Turks, young Turkish politicians. So now that the uh, Ottoman Empire had entered the war, there were various European nations who had their eyes on capturing certain parts of the Muslim world that the Ottoman Empire controlled. For one, there was Russia, which had, which had a long-standing feud and many battles and fights and wars with the Ottomans going back several centuries. They, of course, wanted to take uh, some pieces of the Ottoman Empire for themselves. There were, there were also several Balkan states, even though they had not really entered the war yet. There, there, was, there were several Balkan states that had been captured by the Ottomans centuries before, and they still, even though most of them were independent now, they still despised and hated the Ottomans for that. There were also the French who saw that, who thought or believed that Syria was rightfully theirs because they, they had conquered much of it during the Crusades about a thousand years before this, before World War I. And then there were also the British who, for the most part, they really wanted, wanted to protect what they already had, which, put, which was primarily their hold over the Suez Canal, which was in the, in the region of Egypt, right there by Egypt, and is also which was very crucial to the British for because the Suez Canal gave them access to British India, easy access to British India rather than going across the entire continent of Africa. They really needed the Suez Canal, and the British, as always, wanted to maintain and protect their crown jewel, British India. So Lord Kitchener, 
now that he is the minister of war for the British, he thinks it would be a good idea to get the Arabs who were under the domain of the Ottoman Empire. He thought it would be a good idea to get the Arabs to help the British fight against the Turks. And he wanted to make sure, there are many reasons for him doing this, he wanted to make sure that the Russians and the French, that they did not grab too much territory from the Ottomans. He also wanted to make sure that whichever Muslim ruler came out on top after the Ottomans were taken care of, he wanted to make sure that that Muslim ruler was loyal to the British. And so that's basically where we are right now. Lord Kitchener is trying to find him some Arab allies to help him against the Ottoman Empire. And one of these people he turns to is a man named Hussein ibn Ali. Not that Hussein ibn Ali. This is another Hussein ibn Ali who was the Sharif of Mecca. Hussein ibn Ali as the Sharif, he was basically the ruler of Mecca and he ruled on behalf of the Ottoman Empire. However, as the young Turks began to promote uh, this Turkish nationalism, Hussein ibn Ali, he began to have some second thoughts about their ruling. He actually began to contemplate very briefly revolting against the Ottoman Empire, in particular, the government of the young Turks. You see, before the young Turks... uh, the Ottoman Empire was held together by this notion of religious unity. Islam basically held the empire together. Definitely wasn't the governing policies. All of these different ethnic groups within the Ottoman Empire, most of them were Muslim, and that is what held them together. But the young Turks they began to drive a wedge into this unity, into this solidarity by promoting Turkish nationalism. And this began to alienate the non-Turks, primarily the Arabs, because there were almost an equivalent number of Arabs and Turks within the empire. This began to alienate the non-Arabs. And I want you to be clear about this, that it wasn't that the Ottoman Empire itself was promoting Turkish nationalism. The young Turks were promoting Turkish nationalism. This was a political movement, which I think we're all kind of familiar with these days. This was a political movement within the Ottoman Empire that had taken power and that was promoting this idea of Turkish nationalism. A little bit of background on this. In the summer of 1914, we're still pretty much in the 1914, but in the summer of 1914, before war had broken out in Europe, before these all uh, the Ottomans had even entered the war, before this had happened, Hossein ibn Ali, his son Abdullah ibn Hussein, Abdullah had met with British officials in Cairo, as he mentioned. Egypt was technically on paper part of the Ottoman Empire, but in reality, it was under the control of the British Empire. Abdullah, who was the son of Hussein, who was the Sharif or the ruler of Mecca on behalf of the Ottomans, 
Abdullah, he met with British officials in Cairo and he began to fill their ears with this idea of a potential Arab revolt against the Ottomans. And this was because, once again, this Turkish nationalism that the young Turks were promoting was starting to drive a wedge between some of the other ethnic groups in the, in the Ottoman Empire. Now, this guy, Abdullah ibn Hussein, he would later on become the first king of the country we now know of as Jordan. Anyway, during the summer of 1914, the Ottomans had not yet entered the war, Abdullah, he was really concerned about the Ottoman government. He thought the young Turks would eventually remove his father from power because, once again, they were feeling kind of uh, they were feeling kind of nervous about this whole Turkish nationalism thing. And so Abdullah began to fill the British ears that the uh, Arab tribes within the Ottoman Empire, they were willing to support a revolt against the Ottomans, which wasn't true at all. The Arabs were, for the most part, loyal to the Ottoman Empire, and we'll get into that in a moment, but this was not true. Abdullah just wanted to try to test the waters to see how much the British would be willing to support him and his father if they rose up against the Ottomans. At this point in time, Lord Kitchener, he was actually the governor of Cairo. He had not yet been promoted to uh, minister of war. He was instead the governor of Cairo. And he was against this idea. The Ottomans had not yet entered the war. He saw no reason to support an Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. This became even more evident when eventually um, Abdullah's father, Hussein ibn Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, when he and the Ottoman government eventually reconciled their differences and it seemed as if everything was going to go okay. This was towards the end of the summer, beginning of the fall of 1914. However, even though Hussein ibn Ali was reconciled with the uh, Ottoman government, there were still some Arabs, mostly leaders and Arab elites and stuff, who did not like the young Turks' nationalist policies. It seemed as if Arabic-speaking people, and that was the only thing that really separated people, whether they spoke Arabic or whether they spoke Turkish, because at this, we'll get into some of the um, things in a few moments, but there really wasn't an easy way to define who was Arab and who was Turkish just yet. So it seemed that Arabic-speaking people, they had been barred from high positions within the government under the young Turkish rule, the young Turk rule. One of these men, one of these Arabs who whose career had been limited because of the young Turk nationalist policies was a man named Aziz Ali al-Masri. And if you can tell from the name al-Masri, he was from Egypt. Aziz Ali had been a classmate of Enver Pasha. Remember Enver Pasha, he was now the minister of war. And they had both joined the military, but Aziz Ali, as an Arab, he rose no higher than the um level of major within the military. Meanwhile, Enver Pasha was now the minister of war. And Aziz Ali, he believed the fact that he was Arab was the thing that held him back from, that, that limited his career, that held him back from going higher in the military. So Aziz Ali, he made a big fuss about it. And eventually his former classmate, who was now, the, who was now his boss, Enver Pasha had him arrested and convicted on false charges in early 1914 before the war had started. 
So uh, Aziz Ali finds himself in jail and convicted, and he would have stayed in jail for a while if it wasn't for another uh, one of the uh, young Turks named Jamal Pasha. We mentioned him earlier before, one of those three Pashas. Jamal Pasha, he eventually intervened. He had Aziz released, and then he exiled him to Egypt. I guess that's the least he could do, get him out of um, Istanbul. Anyway, so Aziz, now he's in Egypt, but of course, Egypt is primarily under the control of the British. Even though there were Ottoman spies all over the place, the British still pretty much had military control over Egypt. Once there, Aziz, he begins to complain and make his grievances known to the British officials around September 1914, when it becomes evident that the Ottomans are on the side of the Germans. And so... In doing, in doing this, the young Turks essentially turned a man who was loyal to the Ottoman Empire, they turned him into an enemy, turned him into a British agent because of the young Turk, young Turk nationalist policies by throwing him in jail and all these other things and then exiling him. All this basically turned a guy who was loyal to the Ottoman government, turned him into a British agent. So the British, they had these two things. Now, they had Abdullah ibn Hussein telling them that uh, the Arabs would support, every, the, Arabs, the Arabs wanted to revolt against the Ottoman Empire. They had Aziz Ali complaining about the wrongs done to him because he was an Arab. And the British took all of this to believe that there really was widespread Arab antagonism against the Ottoman Empire and against the Turks. And they seemed to believe, they accepted the idea that Aziz and Abdullah's uh, dislike of the young Turkish government meant that all Arabs within the Ottoman Empire were against the uh, Ottoman government, against the young Turk government. That wasn't necessarily true. While, of course, as you mentioned, Many Arabs did feel alienated because the Turks, the young Turks, that is, were promoting this idea of Turkish nationalism. However, generally speaking, most of the Arabs in the Ottoman Empire, they were loyal to the Ottoman Empire. Many of the Arab elites, however, they didn't care, as we mentioned, for this new young Turk regime. They did not, which was called uh, CUP, basically, Council for Unity and Progress, I believe. I forgot the acronym. They did not really like this re new regime, this government that was controlling the Ottoman Empire. And as the young Turks became increasingly more nationalistic, that did prompt some of the Arab elites to develop their own form of now Arab nationalism. But for the most part, Arabs were loyal to the Ottoman Empire. Now, Arab nationalism began to grow partially by them being in um, different Arab intellectuals going into Paris and parts of uh, London and getting educated in the West, basically, they began to develop this new idea of Arab nationalism. But this Arab nationalism, this was partially a reaction to Turkish nationalism from the young Turks. And this Arab national nationalism was really a, a new thing. It had never really existed in the Muslim world until recently, until this, until this period of World War One, late 19th century, early 20th century. It wasn't even really clear what an Arab actually was. 
Now we have a definition of Arabs as anyone whose native language is Arabic is considered Arab now. But back then, there was no definition of what exactly was an Arab. So much of the Muslim world spoke Arabic. You really, really couldn't call them all truly Arabs. The Arabs of what we now call Arabs, basically, the Arabic-speaking people, that might be a better phrase, the Arabic-speaking people of places like Mesopotamia, which is Iran, Iraq, uh, of the Levant, which is like Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa, these people were a mix of various different ethnicities. The people in Iran and Iraq were mixtures of former of Persians and um, Arabs. People of the Levant were a mixture of of uh, Greek and European and Arabs, people of North Africa were a mixture of of uh, Nubian and Coptic and Arabs. The people of the rest of North Africa was a mixture of Berbers and Arabs and even some Africans. So there was <laughs> you just couldn't really at that point in time pin down what exactly an Arab was. And so the idea of Arab nationalism, this was something that was imported into the Muslim world through two things. Once again, too much, um, <laughs> hate to say it like this, but too much communication with the Western world because the idea of French nationalism, American nationalism, uh, British nationalism, German nationalism, Russian, all that stuff was well-defined and well-established in Europe by them. But this stuff was imported into the Muslim world by a lot of contact and by a lot of stuff, Arabs being educated in Western institutions and also as a reaction to Turkish nationalism, which was, which was brought into the Muslim world by the young Turks. So the, the little bit of Arab nationalism that was going on, even this, this was only really being promoted by a few Arab intellectuals. The vast majority of the Arab world was not sitting around promoting Arab nationalism. I'm not even sure they even considered themselves Arab at that time. Most of these Arab intellectuals that were promoting Arab nationalism, most of them were in Cairo, where it was safe to promote these revolutionary ideas and these essentially um, subversive ideas because most of Egypt was under British control. And within Cairo, many of these Arab nationalists and Arab nationalist intellectuals, they created secret societies and clubs to promote Arab literature and also Arab separatism. So British intelligence, which was also very predominant in Egypt where the British were in control, the British intelligence officials, they mistook all of this uh, these intellectuals sitting in Cairo as being representative of all Arabs. And they thought that this was an overall indication of Arab hatred for their Turkish rulers. But there's something that the British just didn't understand. The Arabs, most Arabs and most Muslims, at least back then, might be different now, but most Muslims, Muslims back then, so long as their rulers were Muslim, most of the Arabs supported the Ottoman government. They were not against the Ottoman so long as they were Muslim. Abdullah ibn Hussein, the, um, the son of the Sharif of Mecca, 
when he had met with the British officials, he gave them this impression of Arab support against the Ottomans. And there were, including his father and some other Arab leaders who held grudges against the young Turks or certain Arab leaders who had their own ambitions. And the British, they, of course, they took all this, all of these sentiments to mean the wrong thing. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of Arabs within the Ottoman Empire had no desire to revolt or rebel against the Ottomans themselves. The British also took these two took these sentiments to mean that there was a united Arab front that supported the British. However, the British and the British intelligence, they were getting all the information from a narrow viewpoint. Just those Arab intellectuals sitting in Cairo, sitting in these cafes in Cairo, debating and discussing the meaning of what a, the meaning of what it means to be an Arab. So that's that's where they were getting all the information from. But those people, these, these Arab intellectuals, these Arab elites, they did not represent the entire Muslim world, not even the entire Arab Muslim world. Many of these elites, many of these intellectuals, they had a whole lot of grudges against each other, by the way. We'll get into some of that also. So many of these Arab leaders, many of them like... Um, the Sharif of Mecca, and there are many others. We'll get into them in a moment. Many of them were actually, they had grudges against each other. The only reason they weren't fighting each other was because they, for various reasons, they were either not strong enough or they were in some way subjects under the Ottoman Empire, which kind of held them all under some sort of control. And so now that the war really was underway, the British really wanted to ensure Hussein ibn Ali's support. Hussein, the Sharif of Mecca, they really wanted to make sure they had his support. As the Sharif or the Emir of Mecca, he was essentially in charge of the annual Hajj pilgrimage. And the British were really concerned about what might happen if there was any disruption in the Hajj. The British themselves they had quite a few Muslim subjects and much of their army was going to be made up of Muslim soldiers from the Indian subcontinent. And they didn't want to cause any anger among their Muslim subjects with a disruption of the Hajj. So it was really in the British interest to make sure they had Hussein ibn Ali's support. They wanted to make sure that Mecca remained open for the Hajj. And so once it was certain that war was in and war was going to happen and that the Ottomans were going to side with the with the Germans, British intelligence, they reached out to uh, Hussein ibn Ali and to try to make sure, try to garner his support. And so they sent intelligence agents to Hussein ibn Ali asking him for his support. And while he did not guarantee his support, he didn't exactly refuse it either. Evidently from this, it seems as if Hussein ibn Ali, he probably had his own ambitions in mind just in case the Ottomans were defeated. But the British, they misunderstood Hussein ibn Ali's tacit approval. He didn't out, out and out come and say that you got my full support. He uh, was very cagey in his response. And anyway, so Kitchener 
He sent a message to Hussein ibn Ali promising British support of an independent Arab state if he helped the British fight against the Turks. Now, Kitchener, when he mentioned an independent Arab state, he only meant Western Arabia, the, the Western portion of the Arabian Peninsula. After some discussion, he, Kitchener did agree to include the entire Arabian Peninsula, but he was limiting it to just the Arabian Peninsula. However, when remember, Kitchener was now in London. He sent his message to British officials in Cairo. The British officials in Cairo, they translated Kitchener's message and then sent it on to their agents in Mecca, where, um, where Hussein ibn Ali was. They sent it down there, and in that translation, the British intelligence officials, they expanded Kitchener's agreement from not just the Arabian Peninsula, but to mean all Arabs, everyone who spoke Arabic. Kitchener, however, his idea, his hope was something different. He only suggested that Hussein ibn Ali would become the next caliph. That was one of the things that he wanted to do. He wanted to support an independent Arab, Arab state. And his intention for Hussein ibn Ali was for him to be the next caliph. But this shows that Kitchener really misunderstood the role of the caliph. He thought the caliph was like the pope in Catholicism. He thought the caliph would be limited to like a spiritual leader. And so he tried to play on Hussein ibn Ali's um, Arab Arab origin, saying that it was time to return the caliphate to the Arabs. He tried to play on that in encouraging Hussein ibn Ali to uh, join his side. But Kitchener did not really understand that the caliph is not like the pope. The pope is really a spiritual, lead, spiritual leader, but the caliph is not just a spiritual leader. The caliph is both spiritual and a political leader. And we can go down some deep holes in this, but leading the prayers in Islam is a symbol of Islamic leadership. It is it is considered very bad form. If you're not Muslim and you're listening to this, it is considered very bad form to walk into a masjid, even here in the United States. It is considered very bad form to walk into a masjid and just start leading prayer without discussing something with the leaders there, whoever the imam is, whoever the board of directors is. It is considered very bad form to to just start leading prayers in a masjid. That's considered, uh, <laughs> it's not good to do, okay? Just bear that in mind. It's not a good thing to do. And even throughout most of Muslim history, whenever uh, someone led the prayer in like a major masjid, obviously the caliph or the sultan, whoever was the governor or leader of that region, he couldn't lead the prayer in every single masjid around there. But whoever led the prayer, they will always lead it in his name. They would give a khutbah, or they will, um, khutbah is a, basically a sermon, a Friday sermon, essentially. They would give a sermon or a khutbah, they would give that sermon in the caliph's name or in the sultan's name. Throughout history, throughout Islamic history, political and spiritual leadership were one and the same, even when the leader wasn't all that spiritual, or even when he wasn't all that political. And Kitchener really misunderstood this. So once again, he tried to tempt 
uh, Hussein ibn Ali to join his side by suggesting a true Arab should become the caliph because I'm not sure if I mentioned this Hussein ibn Ali claimed to be a descendant of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we're not talking about Hussein the grandson of Prophet Muhammad whose name was also Hussein ibn Ali okay different Hussein ibn Ali centuries later anyway Kitchener was only thinking of making Hussein ibn Ali the spiritual leader of Arabs. Another thing that Kitchener misunderstood was that there are lots of divisions among Muslims. Okay, He really didn't understand the many um, divisions that exist within the Muslim world. One of Hussein ibn Ali's and also the Ottomans' major rivals were those who were associated with Ibn Saud. Hussein Ibn Ali in Mecca, he was closer to what we would consider Sufism. And the Ottomans were the same way. They were both more or less along the lines of Sufism. They, Sufism was a major part in both of their religious practices. The Saudis, even though Saudi Arabia didn't exist yet, the Saudis or those who followed, who were part of the, who supported the um, Saudi military at that point in time, or the small Saudi government at that time, they were based in what is now Riyadh, but they were strict Salafi. And I know I've talked about this before, very brief run, brief rundown if I haven't done it already. Salafi is the more appropriate name for what most people call Wahhabi. Wahhabi is people who are who you would call Wahhabi don't call themselves Wahhabi. Only people who are not Wahhabi call Wahhabis Wahhabi. So I don't call Wahhabis Wahhabis. I call them Salafis. That's what they call themselves. And not going to get into what it all means, but Wahhabi comes from the spiritual guide of um, Ibn Saud, the founder of the Saudi family, so to speak, Saudi dynasty, Muhammad ibn Muhammad Abdul, ibn Abdul Wahhab, he was their spiritual guide. And so that's where we get the term Wahhabi from. And they believed in a more, in a very literal interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith, a very, very literal interpretation. And Sufism, which is very spiritual, which essentially means that you have the text of the Quran, but beyond that, there's another hidden meaning beyond that. That sort of thing is antithetical to what the, the Salafis believe. That if there is a hidden meaning, it can't be too hidden. It has to be kind of obvious there. And I don't want to get too deep into that because that can lead into some, into some very murky waters. But in any case, Kitchener did not understand basically that the uh, Saudis or the people who supported Ibn Saud based in Riyadh, they wanted nothing to do with Hussein Ibn Ali in Mecca. So they would have never consented and agreed to recognize Hussein Ibn Ali as the caliph of the Muslim world. There's no way they would have accepted that. And Kitchener didn't understand this. He thought that if he propped up Hussein Ibn Ali as the caliph, then all the other Arab Muslims would fall in line and just follow this guy's lead. He didn't understand that at all. Not to mention, now, Hussein ibn Ali and um, ibn Saud, they were both Sunni Muslims. Kitchener didn't even take into 
into consideration the many Shiite Arabs in the Muslim world, those in Iraq and in Syria and the Levant and Lebanon. All these places included a, a large population of Shiite Arabs, and they also most likely, despite his name, would not have accepted Hussein ibn Ali as their leader either, or as their colleague. They would not have recognized him as such. All of these things Kitchener did not understand. He did not take into consideration. He just thought if he could promote uh, an Arab leader as caliph, the Arabs with under the Muslim, under the Ottoman Empire would fall in line and help support the British against the Ottomans. But he was completely wrong in that. Hossein Ibn Ali, when he received Kitchener's um, invitation to support the British, he understood something completely different than what Kitchener was suggesting. Hossein Ibn Ali understood the caliph as we all understand the caliph. He understood the caliph as being in charge of most of the Muslim world as both the spiritual and the political leader. And to, the, to him, to Hussein ibn Ali, the British were promising to make him the caliph, not only over all of Arabia, Western Arabia, not just the Arabian Peninsula, but also North Africa, and also Mesopotamia, which is basically Iran and Iraq. He thought the British were offering to make him the true political leader of the Muslim world. I mean, he already had Mecca, and so as far as he was concerned, he had every, and he, he believed he was a, a descendant of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I really don't know if he was or not, so I'm not, I haven't really checked it to make sure. But he believed he was, so he thought he had every right to be the caliph. I mean, and you can kind of see where he was coming from. If he's already in charge of Mecca, already in charge of the pilgrimage, a descendant of Prophet Muhammad, he was an educated Muslim as far as, I mean, he had the spiritual, he had both the religious and the, I don't know if he had the, the um, I really don't know if he had the uh, secular education, but he definitely had the religious education of a Muslim leader. If he had all these things, he had every right to believe that he could be the caliph of the Muslim world. And so he expected the British to help him gain that kind of power. The British, all they wanted to do was make him, prop him up as a fake pope over the Muslims. But we'll get into how that disagreement played out in the future episodes. For now, we're going to wrap it up here and... Real quick, before we wrap up the episode, I just want to discuss a few things. Uh, first, in the next episode, we are going to look at the reaction in British India to this whole war that's breaking out that pits the uh, Western world against the Muslim caliphate. And this kind of ties into some research that we're working on right now here at the Islamic History Podcast. And I'll give you some more information about that in a few minutes. Before that, I just want to um, address a concern. Uh, some people have express their disapproval of the way the Ottomans are being portrayed in this series. And I do understand that. And some things I, I do have to take acknowledge I could probably do better in. For one, number, one of the big things is the, uh, the name of the Ottoman capital. Is it Constantinople or Istanbul? Now, at the time that this story takes place, World War I, the Ottoman capital 
was called Istanbul by the Ottomans themselves. However, the Western world still called it Constantinople. It wasn't until after the war and Kemal Ataturk began to secularize Turkey, it wasn't until then that Kemal Ataturk made the name Istanbul official and he asked Western governments to follow suit and to refer to Istanbul as Istanbul and no longer refer to it as Constantinople. This was sometime in the 1930s, and this is when Istanbul became known throughout the world and not just the Muslim world as Istanbul and not Constantinople. As I've learned, as I've learned, modern Turks are offended if you call Istanbul Constantinople, even though the people of my country, the United States, would have called it Constantinople at that time, and most of the Western world and most of the English texts at that time would have called it Constantinople. Locally, it would have been known as Istanbul. I do understand that and don't want to offend anyone, so going forward, I will call it Istanbul also. In reconciling this, I consider the phrase, the word, uh, the phrase Negro. The word Negro would have been acceptable back in the 60s. Most books you would have found would have referred to people of African descent as Negro. However, in today's world, if you call a black person Negro right now, eh, it's not, it's not going to be considered very good. So with that in mind, I will try to remember to refer to the capital, even though it wasn't known throughout the world as, as Istanbul. I'm going to refer to it as Istanbul. Another thing people have brought up is that I have been kind of harsh and critical on the Ottomans, or at least the Ottoman Empire at this time. But I want you to understand that this is really not a reflection on the Ottoman Caliphate as a whole, though it had lots of problems. Good Lord, as I go through my research in this and I'm forced to read certain things about the Ottomans, Man, they had some they had some problems, okay? They were killing each other like crazy. I mean, brother killing brother, fighting for the for the it was bad. Now, many of these things were hundreds of years before our time, before the time of the story that we're taking on, but by no means should you be under the impression that the 600-year rule of the Ottoman Empire was full of great people. Like every other dynasty, they had good people and good bad people, they had good rulers and bad rulers. But what we're talking about now, this is really more of a reflection of the government that was run by the Young Turks. The Young Turks were very nationalistic. The Young Turks, they promoted a pro-Turkish ideology that alienated the non-Turk subjects within the Ottoman Empire. So I want you to understand that while I may be somewhat critical, I'm not criticizing the Ottomans as a whole. Much of my criticism is really about the Young Turk government. And they really did seem to promote a, a, uh, a nationalistic attitude. They kind of tricked the Ottoman Empire into joining this war that the Ottoman Empire really had no business joining. So really, my disagreement is more with the Young Turks than with the Ottoman Empire in and of itself. You know, the Ottoman Empire has some problems, but well, not the Ottoman, many of the Ottoman emperors, many of, many of the Ottoman rulers, some of the guys have some serious problems, but there's neither here nor there. 
Another thing to remember is that by this time, the actual caliph, the actual sultan, the ruler, the sultan of the Ottoman Empire, his power had been weakened. He was no longer an absolute ruler as it was in the past. There's now a parliament, there are lots of politicians. And we spoke about in the first episode how much of the um, authority had been delegated to local rulers and stuff. And so the actual power and authority of the caliph while the um, position itself still had lots of relevance, the actual power it actually had, the actual authority that it had, it had really been weakened. Much of the running of the government by this time was in the hands of the Young Turks. The Young Turks were mostly nationalist politicians, and we can see how that kind of ideology, we can see how it can have some uh, negative impact. We'll leave it at that. So I encourage you to visit the show notes page for this episode. It will be at islamichistorypodcast.com slash bonus five. That is the number five. On this page, I will also include, inshallah, some of the maps of the region. Also show you some of my notes regarding the research we're working on for a uh, future series coming up. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.